Hey Life Church Livonia, welcome to Easter Sunday. Today is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We as Christians believe that the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of life and it is the cornerstone of our faith. There's a Christian tradition that Kate already practiced earlier that I want to uh, explain a little bit and practice together. On Easter, Christians historically have greeted each other when someone says, he is risen, and the other responds with, he is risen indeed. And I want to greet each other that way this morning. So I'm going to say, he is risen, and I want you to type back in the comments, he's risen indeed. So he is risen. I want to begin with reading the resurrection account from the book of Matthew. This isn't going to be on the screen. And I want you to simply listen, maybe close your eyes and, and listen to this as just you absorb what the Gospels have to say about Easter Sunday. This is Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell Jesus' disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. I love Easter. It's one of my favorite holidays. I love Easter because in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, I find the answer to my heart's deepest questions. And I find it interesting in the account of the resurrection. Here are the disciples, the people who spent three plus years with Jesus, see him resurrected in the flesh. And still, some of them have questions. And still, some of them doubt. Easter raises a lot of questions for me, but it also answers a lot of questions. Because in my heart of hearts, I want to know if I matter. I want to know if I'm good. I want to know what makes life worth living. I want to know what my purpose is. I also want to know what a bunny has to do with Jesus. I mean, I never understood that part of like the Easter celebration. Does this bunny actually lay eggs? Where do the eggs come from? Like, how are they a part of this? What does that have to do with the resurrection? Are any of the eggs actually filled with baby bunnies? Or does the Easter bunny only give birth to jelly beans? 
There's a lot of things there. Those aren't my deepest questions, but they're a part of my questions for Easter. And we're going to talk about how Easter answers questions today. But before we talk about answers, I want to talk a little bit more about questions. And I want to camp out on that. Questions are magical things, right? Because questions are how most of us met our spouses. Is anyone sitting here? How long have you been working here? Hi, I'm Alex. What's your name? Her name was Amber, by the way, in case you're wondering. Some questions are funny, especially kids' questions. I looked up online <laughs> as I was prepping for this sermon, questions that kids ask their parents, questions of kids under eight. One kid asked, in the olden days, was life in black and white too? <laughs> one, one girl asked her mom, why do spiders run away when I fart? <laughs> I saw another kid ask, why do I'm up for it and I'm down for it mean the same thing? <laughs> and finally, one kid asked, real deep this one, he said, Dad, does the letter W start with D when you spell it? Ooh, that's deep, that's deep. Some questions are funny, some questions are dangerous. Does this outfit make me look fat? How old do you think I am? Did you leave any leftovers in the fridge from last night? That one will start a fight in a home. I'll tell you what right now. Some questions are small and just a part of our day. Did you see that meme on Reddit? What do you want to watch tonight? What board games have you been playing lately? Some questions are embarrassing. Is that smell coming from your feet? Did you know your zipper was down that whole time? Or hey, your shirt's inside out. How long has it been like that? <laughs> Some questions are not funny, they're sensitive. Mom, where do babies come from? What happened to Grandpa? Dad, why wasn't Uncle Randy at Thanksgiving? Questions are everywhere. God uses questions all throughout Scripture. He responds to people with questions. He uses them to create intimacy, like with Adam and Eve. To rebuke, like with Job. To give purpose and calling, like with Moses. God asks us questions not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants to interact with us. Questions are one of the ways God responds to us, and they are also how we respond to him, especially in suffering. When life is hard, we ask questions like, God, are you real? Do you really love me? And why? Why is this happening to me? If you find yourself asking any of those questions, I want to invite you back next week. We're starting a new series called Why God? And in this series, we look at different people throughout Scripture who asked variations of that question and how God's response to them changed them and how God's response to them can change us. But that's next week. This week, we're talking about Easter. Easter answers life's most important questions because I think all of you are like me. Deep down in our souls, we are asking things like, am I good or am I bad at my core? You're wondering, like me, am I enough? Am I valuable? You wonder, do, can anything good come from the worst situations in my life? If I fail, do I get a second chance that's real? We want to know what's true about life and reality in the world. What happens after I die? Is there a God? And if so, who? The Easter story gets to the heart of these questions, and in fact, is God's answer to them. But in order to see how the Easter story answers our deepest questions, I want to look at a question today that seems unrelated, but in fact shows us what Easter is all about. Today I want to spend time looking at this question. 
who is Barabbas? I know, I said it seems unrelated, but I'm asking you to track with me, okay? Because uh, it's an interesting question, and Barabbas is an interesting character in the Easter narrative. You know, like, the Easter account in the Gospels makes sense most of the way through. Uh, the Easter account is Jesus heading towards the cross to die for the sins of the world and then be raised from the dead, inviting us into a new way to be human. This is what we call the gospel. It means good news. And it truly is good news. Your sins and my sins have been forgiven. The ways that we have broken the world and that we make hell on earth. There has to be justice for that. And in the cross, Jesus took the justice for that upon himself so that he could give you and I a new way to live that doesn't bring hell to earth, but heaven on earth as we follow Jesus' way of right. Our sins have been forgiven and that longing for the world made right, a country made right, a family made right, myself made right, those are being fulfilled and can be fulfilled in Jesus. Last week, we celebrated Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time in his life before death. He's welcomed with shouts of joy as the people crowd, Hosanna! Hosanna! Meaning, come save us. Come save us. They are hoping that he's their long-awaited messianic figure. All the tensions in the gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John begin to come to a head in the final week of Jesus' life. And this climaxes in the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own disciples. As he betrays Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, all these tensions come to a head. The disciples that have been following Jesus for three years scatter. The main antagonists of the gospel stories, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they finally get to put Jesus on trial. They can't prove he's broken any laws, but they charge him with blasphemy because he's claimed to be the Son of God and the King of the Jews. They can't execute him on their own because Israel isn't a free country. It's occupied by Rome and they don't have the authority to execute him or kill anyone for that matter. So they take him before Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor of Israel. And thus far the story makes sense. You have an antagonist, a protagonist, and the powers that be all coming together in this final clash. But then there's this scene, this moment, this situation that isn't really necessary to talk about the cross or the tomb or the resurrection. And it's this moment with a man named Barabbas. And this is what the scripture says about it in Matthew 27. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor Pilate and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison, with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him! they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged. 
and handed him over to be crucified. So Jesus is being accused by the Pharisees and Sadducees, these teachers of the law, and they're out for blood. They've convinced the crowd to ask Pilate to crucify Jesus. Though crucifixion was common, it was usually used by the Romans, and it was used by the Romans to quell Jewish riots, uprisings, or to kill Jewish revolutionaries who pretended or tried to be the Messiah. So normally Rome would crucify messiahs, or would-be messiahs, as a way of keeping the Jews in check. But now, the script seems to be flipped. It's the Jews who are asking for the crucifixion this time. And Pilate can see things are adding up here. And instead of just crucifying Jesus to quell the unrest, he proposes a choice between Jesus and Barabbas. Now, historically, Pilate was known to be very brutal, a really brutal governor towards the Jews especially. There are many accounts of public and mass violence towards the Jews from Pilate. So scholars believe that he instituted this prisoner release on Passover as a way of appeasing the Jews and avoiding a revolt or a riot. Only this time, the riot that's forming isn't against Rome. It's against a fellow Jew and in favor of Rome. They're accusing Jesus of trying to usurp Caesar, and they want him crucified for it. But isn't that what they've been praying for in their Passover celebrations? They've been waiting for a Messiah to overthrow Rome. And there have been Messiahs who have actually tried to overthrow Rome more than once, which is why Barabbas is even on the platform standing next to Jesus that day. Which leads us back to this question, who is this Barabbas? So to answer that question, I want to look at who Barabbas is as a person and who Barabbas is as a symbol. And we're just going to start with answering the question, who is Barabbas as the person? Scripture simply says this about him. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. I want to zoom in on two words here. Because these two words are going to tell us everything we need to know about Barabbas. I want to zoom in on the words insurrectionists, and I want to zoom in on the word uprising. I'm going to give you a three-minute history lesson. If you hate history, hated it in school, that's okay. We'll get back to the emotional stuff soon. But if you're like me and care about the way all these things work together, you're going to love this part. So go back with me to the end of the Old Testament, will you? Uh, at the end of the Old Testament, Israel gets exiled from the Promised Land. You see, as they entered the Promised Land, God made a covenant with them. And the covenant was, as if you will obey me, I will preserve you here. And if you disobey me in sin, I will exile you from this land. The people said, great, sounds good to us. And then they started sinning. And so God sent generation after generation after generation of prophet to tell the people, hey, listen, you're breaking the covenant. If you don't stop, you're going to get exiled. And the people said, oh, thanks for telling us. And they would kill the prophets. Okay, so at the end of the Old Testament, God finally makes good on his promise. And he sends the nation of Babylon to conquer Israel, and, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple that Solomon, the son of David, built. So Babylon takes over Israel. Yeah, Babylon in charge. But then Babylon gets pounced by Persia. Boom! Persia's in charge. And then Persia gets pounced by Alexander the Great. And so Alexander the Great is in charge, right? So these kingdoms are kind of building on each other. And Alexander the Great's in charge, but then Alexander the Great dies. You know, and then his kingdom splits into four different kingdoms and four different empires, if you will. And one of those is called the Seleucid Empire. Would you say that with me? Seleucid Empire. If I'm mispronouncing that, let me know in the comments, but that's how I think it's pronounced. The Seleucid Empire had taken over Israel and was aggressively anti-Jewish. The anti-Jewish sentiment that we're so familiar with from the Nazis 
It's a tale as old as time. These poor folks have just had so many people hating on them. And so the Seleucid Empire was one of them. They tried to outlaw Jewish customs. They wanted the Jews to look more like Greeks because the Seleucid Empire was the Greek Empire. And they took over the temple that Ezra and Nehemiah had rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. Uh, if you want to read more about that, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, the biblical books, talk about them rebuilding the temple. So the Seleucid Empire takes that all over and pushes out the Jewish worship and institutes pagan cult worship. Now, as you can imagine, the Jews are pretty ticked about this. This is their whole way of life. So a family called the Hasmoneans, led by a guy named Judas Maccabee, led a revolt to take back the Promised Land, to take Israel back from the Seleucid Empire. And they won. They did it. They beat the Seleucid Empire and they took over Jerusalem. And this came to be known as the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt is what Hanukkah celebrates. Because in the Maccabean Revolt, this occupied, oppressed nation of Israel won its freedom through military force because God was with them. Right? That's what Hanukkah celebrates. So things were going pretty good then for about 93 years or so until the Maccabean ruler in power died. And there was a power struggle. <laughs> ah, it's mine, you know, all that stuff. A guy named Herod, who we later become known as Herod the Great, takes advantage of the chaos. And he makes a deal with Caesar. He says, hey, listen, if you make me king of Israel, I'll let you occupy it. I won't fight against you. I won't lead any rebellions. I'll do my part to quell those things. But you just got to back me with military support and money. And the Roman Empire says, hey, sounds good to us. And so they do exactly that. Herod becomes king. He's king when Jesus is born. Pretty freshly king when Jesus is born. And once again, Israel is occupied. They're no longer free. They're once again oppressed by a foreign power. But they were inspired by the Maccabees. And that freedom was fresh in their minds. They longed and looked forward to a coming Messiah who they believed would be like the Maccabees, overthrowing their governmental oppressors, who would be this military leader who would rise up and make Israel free again. That hope led to the rise of a faction in Judaism called the Zealots. Now, the Zealots believed and looked forward to the Messiah. They believed God was with them to drive out their oppressors once before, and he will do it again. Salvation wasn't something that was just happening one day. It was something that could happen today. They violently fought against the Roman occupiers, hoping that from the zealot ranks, God's Messiah would rise up to be a political figure who would set them free. They were militant activists who sought social and spiritual reform through violence. There had been multiple insurrections by the zealots to reignite the Maccabean revolt and bring about the age of the Messiah. And there had even been a failed messianic revolution just before Jesus was born. Many had tried, wondering, maybe I'm the Messiah, or maybe I'm the Dragonborn. If you don't get that joke, that's okay, you just don't play a lot of video games. And if you do, you're a beautiful nerd and I love you for it. So, it just means a lot of people wondered if they might have been the Messiah, okay? But, you know, every would-be Messiah from the Zealots ended up in the same place. Do you know where that place was? A cross! <laughs> because the Romans would go, oh, he's your Messiah? Yeah cross and then they would hang him in the public square for everyone to go "Ooh, I don't want to be that guy right so that's what would happen and this is how Barabbas got to the platform that day Barabbas the person was a zealot he was a militant activist a freedom fighter who had fought for and failed with a false messiah so now we come back to the text 
with Pilate standing on the platform asking the people to choose between the true Messiah or this freedom fighter who had trusted in a false Messiah. What's more, Barabbas tells us that, I'm sorry, Matthew tells us that Barabbas' full name is Jesus Barabbas. The name Barabbas is a combination of a couple Hebrew words, one being Bar and the other being Abba's. Now, Abba is the Hebrew name for father or daddy, and this is the name that Jesus called his father in heaven, Abba. So, in English, Barabbas' actual name translates to Jesus, son of the father. So here, Pilate is asking the people to choose between Jesus of Nazareth, the true Messiah, and Jesus, the son of the father, the failed Messiah. And who will the people choose? Will they choose between the human-made Messiah or the Messiah who made humanity? The false Messiah or the one true king? And this leads us to who Barabbas is as a symbol. Barabbas as a symbol represents the false savior. He is literally a man who gave his life, his worldview, his hope, and his identity to a failed and false messiah. He followed this false savior. He fought for this false savior. He killed for this false savior. Now, we don't know if Barabbas fought with an actual person who claimed to be the messiah or if he just fought for the false messianic idea in the ranks of the zealots. And it doesn't really matter because Barabbas symbolizes the kind of person who trusts in the false savior to save him. Barabbas symbolizes the kind of person that trusts a false messiah and ends up in chains for it. Barabbas symbolizes us. All of us have trusted in things and people and ideas that are not God to save us, to fulfill us, to define us, to answer the deepest questions in our hearts. We've asked our false messiahs, am I good? Am I enough? Am I valuable? What happens after I die? Can you tell me what my purpose is? And just like someone told Barabbas, if you give your life to me, I will set you free. And then Barabbas ended up as a prisoner in chains. That's our story too. Each of us have trusted in false messiahs to answer those questions. We've ended up in our own kind of chains. Some of us have trusted in sex. We've slept with lots of people, or at least pretended to, simulated it with pornography. We trusted in it to fill us, to tell us that we're valuable, to tell us that we're worthy, to tell us that we're important, that we have meaning, to make us feel loved. But after the rush faded, it just left us even emptier than before. Others trusted in substances to give us peace, wholeness, to heal that thing that happened to me in my past, and maybe to bring redemption. But all we got was destruction and brokenness and isolation, and what promised to set us free, the weed, the alcohol, the whatever else, it just became its own kind of chain. And the escape was nice at first, but the prison it became was worse than before. It promised to make the pain go away, to make it better, but it only made it worse. Some of us have trusted in people and other people to make us feel important, to tell us that we matter, to show us we're enough. But their praise, their love, their thanks, just, it just never seems to be enough, does it? And we grow more and more bitter, hoping that maybe this time it'll work. If I think about what they need or if I can serve them in some way, if I'm really helpful, then maybe... That hole in me will get filled when they tell me thank you. And what happens is we end up using our loved ones as tools to try to love ourselves. 
And the very relationships we treasure get strained and broken. Some of us have trusted in work and money and in success. I know I have. We wanted to live up to the hopes and expectations and dreams that came from us and were placed upon us. And so we worked and worked and worked and sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed. But no matter how many times we got the grade, no matter how many times we earned the bonus, no matter how many times we won the award, no matter how many times it went just as we hoped it would, we smile, we say thank you, we talk about our hard work and our strategies, and then we go home and we're alone and we're empty. And I know I've been there because it's just not enough. Some of us have trusted in fun, in variety, in adventure. We wanted to make our lives feel like they were worth living. So we indulged every desire. We made more than a handful of dreams come true. We laughed more nights away than we can even remember. But the satisfaction never stays, does it? And what we're chasing just never seems to arrive. Some of us have trusted in control and security just to make us feel we're okay. Just to make us feel like we're safe and that things are going to work out. But instead of giving us peace and harmony and freedom, it only makes us angry and anxious and bitter and the people closest to us pay the biggest prices. Barabbas is us. We have all trusted in things to save us. And then they just left us in chains. And as Barabbas stands on the platform next to Jesus and the people have a choice to make about who they're welcoming home and whom they're damning to the cross, this is what happens next. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him! Why? What crime has he committed? Pilate asked. Crucify him! They shouted all the louder. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The people chose to welcome the symbolic false messiah and send the true messiah to death. They welcomed the failure, the murderer, the one who actually did deserve the cross. And they condemned the sinless son of God. The scriptures don't say this, but I imagine Barabbas was shocked. I mean, surely he had heard about Jesus even in prison, right? He must have thought that Jesus would have had to go through. I mean, what else has this guy done but heal and set free? Barabbas knows what he's done, and it's nothing like that. And I imagine the shock, the joy, the confusion, the excitement, painting a strange smile on his face as the people call his name instead of Jesus's. As Barabbas walks away, there's no record of him turning to Jesus and thanking him. I owe you everything now. You've taken my place. I have a life because of you. I was in chains and you set me free. Thank you. We don't see any of that. There's none of that. We don't know what happens to Barabbas after he walks off the platform where Jesus stands. He simply walks away. And my guess is that he'll probably try to save himself again. He'll probably 
gang up with another false savior at the next riot and another attempt to overthrow Rome. But in this moment, as Jesus stands condemned and Barabbas, the truster in false saviors, walks free, in this moment, we see Easter. Jesus could have freed himself at any moment. He could have opened his mouth and simply explained his innocence. He could have prevented his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have opened the scriptures to the Pharisees and Sadducees and shamed them. He could have called down legions of angels from heaven and opened the eyes of everyone to see the spiritual realm. But he didn't. It's like he doesn't even want to be saved. Which is exactly the point. Because Jesus wants Barabbas to be saved. Because Jesus loves Barabbas. Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. And so Jesus went to the cross because he wanted Barabbas to be free. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for Barabbas even though Barabbas would walk away and never turn back to Jesus. The Messiah Barabbas had spent his whole life looking for, waiting for, fighting for, killing for. It was right next to him. And he didn't even realize it. This is you. And this is me. All of us in our sins have cut ourselves off from God and from life. And the consequence of that is death. And the only way a branch that has been cut off can get reattached to the tree is if a wound is opened in the tree for the branch to be reinserted. And on the tree of the cross, Jesus was wounded so that you and I might be reconciled to God, that we might be given a new life. And just like with the first Easter with Barabbas, Jesus shows us today that whether or not we choose it, whether or not we recognize it, whether or not we believe it, he wants to set us free. He wants to heal. He wants to redeem. He wants to give new life. And he wants to be the answers to our questions. We say, Lord, am I good or am I bad? And Jesus replies, oh, I made you so very good. Sin corrupted that, but I have come to make all things new. We ask, Father, am I enough? Am I valuable? And Jesus replies, if it were just you separated from me, that would be enough for me to come. You are more valuable to me than my own life. I gave it all, and I would give it all even if it was just for you. We wonder, Lord, if I fail, do I get a second chance, a real one, one that really counts and matters? And Jesus says, I will forgive you and forgive you and forgive you because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. We ask, what about those moments, Lord, the ones that are so painful I can't even talk about them? Can anything good come from that? And Jesus says, when I rose from the dead, death no longer had the final word on anything. I am the resurrection, I am the life, and I will make all things new, even that. And we wonder in our heart of hearts, is there a God? And if so, who? And Easter screams at us, there is, there is a God, there is only one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of all things, the repairer of what's broken, the firstborn of all creation, the all-powerful, the eternal, the one who sets the captives free. There is a God, and his name is Jesus. Our greatest challenge is not our questions. It's not our devotion. It's not our focus. It's not our discipline. Our greatest challenge is believing the gospel. 
Could it be that there is a God whose love is so deep, so scandalous, so wide, so big, so high, so welcoming, that God gave his one and only Son so that whoever believed in him would not die but have eternal life? That there is a God that says, let me have your sin, child. I want you to be free. You can't do this. You're no match for the powers of hell, but I am. Let me have it. Let me take it. Let me give you freedom instead. And the invitation is just to say, okay. And to walk off the platform as Jesus walks to the cross. This Easter, God wants to be the answer to your questions, whatever it is. He wants to meet you with love, with forgiveness, and with resurrection. And if you're here this morning, and you're listening to this, and you feel that pressure in your chest, that lump in your throat, those tears in your eyes, the ache in your heart, that is God. And that is God inviting you into a whole new kind of life. That is God wanting to set you free this Easter. Because Jesus loves Barabbas. And Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves me. And I want to invite you to pray with me right now and to take a step towards Jesus today to say, Lord, okay, so would you pray with me? Lord, I feel my sin. Lord, I know what I've done. And I know, Lord, that no matter how hard I try, it's not enough. There's something broken in me. But I give that to you. Because you're right. I am no match for the powers of hell. But I believe that you are. And Lord, I'll let you have my sin. Would you give me new life in Jesus? Show me, Lord, what to do next. And please, give me your Holy Spirit that I might know your presence and hear your voice to lead me and guide me. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you just prayed with me, please fill out that connection card in the comment section, or I'm sorry, the video description, so that we can follow up with you. Because this Easter is not just about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus wants to make this about your resurrection. We'll see you next week for our new series.